Friend, did you hear that? His mercy is more. More than you need. And you need a lot if you're like me. And many of you come to this place today and you know that place where you just need the mercy of God in your life. You need the mercy of God in your family, the mercy of God in your marriage. You need the mercy of God in your own weakness. And hear the good news about Jesus. He has more than enough mercy. More than enough mercy for you. So would you bow your heads and let's enter into a time of prayer. And would you just bring that place where you need the mercy of Jesus. Bring that place to him in prayer right now. Just acknowledge Jesus, I need you to show mercy in this circumstance. Would you pray that the Lord would speak to you a merciful word from his word this morning? And that his mercy that's stronger than darkness would wipe away all of the darkness that may be surrounding your heart and mind and life today. Father, we thank you that in Jesus you have more than enough mercy than we need. An inexhaustible well, a spring, a river of life that would flow out of us by your mercy. And God, I know that those joining us online, those present in this room are people who are in need of mercy. We all are in need of it today, God. And so Lord, as we look into your word, as we think about marriage and your design and desire for marriage, God, we pray for mercy in our marriages. I pray the mercy of Jesus would be shed, poured out upon us today. Father, do a work that only you can do. And Lord, I just personally confess my own weakness in this moment. So I bring this sermon, Father, like loaves and fish and ask you to multiply it. Do what only you can do, God, for people that you love that are right here in this room today. And Lord, I pray that you'd be glorified among us. So Father, we look to your word and seek to hear your voice. And Lord, we pray we'd be raised by your power as we go from this place today. And we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. This morning, we're, we're going to continue the series of studies on relationships that we began last week. Uh, we're here in Colossians 3, and we're going to be in Colossians 3 for the next four or five Weeks, And I just want you to notice that as you glance down at Colossians 3, what you find at the very end of this chapter is that the Apostle Paul gives really specific instructions for the various relationships that mark most of our lives. So for instance, in verses 18 and 19, you find that he gives specific instructions to wives and to husbands. That's where Paul is going, specific teaching in the relationships, for instance, between a husband and a wife. And the way that Paul chooses to get there, the way he chooses to get to verses 18 to 19 under the leadership of the Spirit 
is by giving us a foundation that applies for every relationship that we have. And so here's how I want us to continue the foundation that we looked at last week. I want us to look at the foundational truths in verses 1 through 17 through the lens of that first specific relationship Paul talks about in verses 18 and 19, the relationship between husband and wife. I want us to talk about this foundation Jesus lays for our relationship by using marriage as a lens to understand what it is that Jesus is calling us to, to understand what Jesus is desiring to do in your marriage and in my marriage, okay? So one of the reasons why I would want us to look at these first 17 verses that way is, one, because that's where Paul's going, but also because I find it really helpful to think about these concepts that Paul's discussing in light of a real-life relationship that we have. You know, it's one thing to talk about something like patience in a very generic way sitting in a room like this, but it's another thing to talk about patience sitting at the stop sign right outside of this building, you know, and the, the line of traffic is, is backing up, and you have a real-world scenario you're having to think about being patient Within, Well, that's what I pray that the Lord will do in us today, that he would give some real world, real life, flesh and blood to the concepts that we'll be looking at in these verses as we discuss the foundation for our relationships in light of the desire of God for our marriages. Now, I know that some of you aren't married in this room today. I was reminded of that yesterday when my girls said, Dad, what are you preaching on tomorrow? And I said, well, I'm going to be talking about marriage. And they said, well, how's that apply to us? We're not married. And I said, you're geniuses. Let me bring that up tomorrow. Here's how this applies to you. I know there are many of you who are single now but desire to be married. And as you think about marriage, it's really important that you would have a biblical foundation ahead of time so you'd be establishing God-honoring expectations and a God-honoring trajectory in any relationship you view potentially in light of marriage. And so this is for those of you who are single and are thinking about what God may want for your life in the future as he leads you to marriage. The other thing is I know that you probably have married friends. You may have married parents. You may have married family members. You may have individuals who are in your life as a single person who are married. And it's really important that you would know how to encourage and how to pray for the married people in your life that you know and love. And then even more than that, the principles that we'll be talking about in this passage today are for every relationship. We're just looking at them through the lens of marriage. So if you're a single person, I want to encourage you to ask the Spirit of God to bring to your heart and mind the various relationships you're in that need what Jesus is offering to give in this passage of Scripture. So we'll be talking about marriage today, but whether or not you're married, I trust that the Lord has a word for you. So with that in mind, let's look at Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to Keep in mind what we talked about last week. This is a foundation for our relationships. Verse 1 of Colossians chapter 3 says this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Stop right there. Remember last week we looked really closely at these verses. I'm just going to give you a quick reminder of what we saw. What we saw is that at the heart of that paragraph is a truth that is central to Christianity. Namely, when we place our faith and trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, God miraculously unites us to Jesus. His death becomes our death. That's how our sin can be forgiven. Because in faith, we are united to Christ and we're united to his death. That means we're present at his cross. And since we're present at his cross, our sin is present at his cross. And the punishment of God for our sin fell on the cross of Jesus Christ. That's how we can be forgiven. Our sin was present at the cross. But not only does his death become our death, His life, his resurrection power becomes the power that gives us the ability to live a brand new life. That's what he says there in verse 1. If then you've been raised with Christ. You have a new power at work in you if you're trusting in Jesus. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. So by faith in the, the, the work of Jesus, we're united to Christ. His death and his resurrection. And let me just mention, that's one of the reasons why baptism is so important as a follower of Jesus Christ. Baptism portrays that spiritual reality. We go under the water to show that we have died with Christ, and we come up out of the water to show that by his power, we're raised to live a brand new kind of life. That's what we're showing in baptism. And I just want to encourage those of you who have yet to be baptized as a display of your faith in Jesus to be a part of our beach baptism. In a couple of weeks, we'll be going down to the beach. It's one of the favorite things that we do all year long because we go into this community and we tell this world we are unashamed of Jesus and his gospel. And we display his gospel there in that ocean, that ocean that represents the ocean of God's mercy to us in Jesus. And if you've not been a part of that. If you've not made your public profession of faith through baptism, I want to encourage you, make that step. Talk to one of our pastors at the close of this service. You can also go out into the foyer on your way out. There's a sign-up sheet. If you'll just sign up there for beach baptism, we'll follow up with you in the next few days and give you more information, have discussions with you if you have any questions about baptism. We want you to be a part of what God's design is for your life, and that is to declare the gospel of Jesus that's true as you are following Jesus into baptism. So baptism is a powerful picture of our union with Jesus. It marks the beginning of our life in Christ as we show the world what has occurred in us. We've been united with Jesus. And that changes everything about us, guys. Being united to Jesus changes everything about us, including our relationships, because Jesus starts to live in us. He lives his own life in us. That's why verse 4 says, Christ is your life. Just think about that. I just want you to think about that today. Jesus is willing to live his life through you today. He's willing to love the people that are all around you today through you. He's willing to serve the people who are around you today through you. He is willing to give you wisdom as you navigate relationships and make important decisions. He's willing to give you his wisdom, 
his ability. He is willing to give you his power to overcome the sin that would easily entrap you and ruin your relationships. Jesus is willing to live his life through you. And that that brings up something we all need to hear, we all need to be reminded of. The only way The only way you can live in God-honoring relationship, the only way you can be the kind of spouse, the kind of parent, the kind of friend that God wants you to be is by having the power of Jesus flowing in and through you. And as we think about marriage, that actually gives us the big idea for our time together this morning. Here's the big idea for today. The most important person in your marriage is Jesus. The most important person in your marriage is Jesus. Listen to me, friend. The most important thing about your marriage is not who your spouse is. It's not anything your spouse does or hasn't done. It's nothing to do with your spouse in that sense. The most important thing about your marriage is who Jesus is. And what Jesus is able to do. And here's the reason I say that. Because when Jesus is being Jesus in you, your marriage will experience something only Jesus can do. And here's what I know. Many of you in this day say, I need a work that only Jesus can do. I need a miracle in my marriage. I need a miracle in my home. I need a, I need a miracle In my life today. And the good news is that's exactly what Jesus promises to do in every person who will trust in Him. That makes Jesus the most important person in your marriage. And that's so integral to the truth of what Paul is teaching in Colossians. What I want you to see is that he actually starts this letter by letting the Colossian believers get to know who Jesus is so they can know. Who it is that will be living in them. I want to show you a couple things out of Colossians chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, you can go back to Colossians chapter 1. We'll put it on the screen. But I want you to see a couple truths that Paul actually teaches about the Jesus who desires to live in you that actually have a lot of bearing on how we as followers of Jesus should view our marriage. The first thing we see is this. It's that Jesus is the creator Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 says this, For by him, talking about Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. Listen to me, friend. Jesus created all things. And don't you know that all things include marriage? Jesus is the creator of marriage. Here's what you need to know, and this is something for us to really dig in on this season or in this season of our culture. Marriage is not the invention of culture or government. Marriage is the creation of Jesus Christ. He made marriage. Do you know what that means? It means that Jesus has the right to define what marriage is. And only Jesus has the right to define what marriage is. And since our world is attempting to redefine marriage and everything pertaining to marriage in such radical ways, I just want you as a follower of Jesus to see what Jesus himself, as the creator of marriage, what he says about marriage. Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, listen to what Jesus says 
about marriage. Jesus answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning? Now, let me ask you this. Who created? Who created? Jesus. (laughs) We just read that in Colossians 1. Have you not read that he who created them and Jesus as God created them from the beginning, made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Listen, in just those few verses, friend, there is so much truth about what Jesus says concerning marriage. There's a a whole volume of truth here that defines what marriage is in the eyes of Jesus. First, you learn that Jesus created two biological genders, male and female. And those two genders, he says, are the building blocks for marriage. I want you to notice that's why verse 5 links the two genders with marriage. He uses the word therefore. He says God designed marriage to be between a biological male and female. Therefore, this is a building block. This is a foundation for marriage. And so Marriage is for one man and one woman. Here's what that means, okay? As you're looking at the word of God and allowing Jesus to be the authority on marriage, it means this, that in the eyes of Jesus, there's no such thing as same-sex marriage because a marriage requires a man and a woman or it isn't a marriage. That's what Jesus is saying here. Furthermore, Jesus says in verse 6 that the two actually become one. And that's not just a description of the physical relationship, even though that's included. It's actually a description of something that God does. That's what verse 6 says. It says, God has joined together. When two people, a man and a woman, enter into a marriage, they become one, not just through a physical act, but through a spiritual work of God. They're united in a way. That Jesus says we should not attempt to separate. He's saying marriage is made to last a lifetime. Here's what that means. It means divorce is not God's design for marriage. So listen, in just those few verses, put all of those truths together and Jesus gives us a pretty clear definition of biblical marriage. Marriage is a covenant relationship between one man and one woman for one lifetime. That's what Jesus created marriage to be. And church, it is essential that if we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ, that we affirm that Jesus and only Jesus has the right to define marriage. And no matter what our culture says, no no matter what pressure would get put on us, church, I pray we will always be the kind of people who honor Jesus as the creator and definer of marriage by being faithful, by practicing biblical fidelity to say, this is what Jesus says marriage is. And his design for marriage It actually has a purpose. I want you to notice that's the second thing we see about Jesus. Jesus is not only the creator. Jesus is the reason that marriage exists. Look at the rest of Colossians chapter 1 verse 16. He says, all things, including marriage, were created through him. And notice this last phrase, and for him. Marriage exists for the glory of Jesus. 
Marriage exists. It's the creation of Jesus to display the glory of his grace and his mercy and his redemptive love, of his covenant commitment to his bride, of his self-sacrifice and service. Marriage exists, in a sense, to be a picture that Jesus wants to paint, to portray to this world the beautiful truth of his gospel and the reality of who he is and what he promises to do. And just think for a second how that would change your marriage if that was the grid you used to make decisions about your marriage. So what if the way you interact with your wife or your husband began with the question, What will glorify Jesus most? Not what will get my way, not what do I naturally want, but what will glorify Jesus most? As you're you're a single person thinking about who you'll marry, would you ask that question? What would glorify Jesus most? As you choose dating relationships and you choose a, a process, in a sense, into which you'll begin to date other people, what would glorify Jesus most? Most, listen, marriage exists to display the glory of Jesus Christ. So the glory of Jesus should determine the decisions we make about our marriage. So the question then becomes, what does that marriage that Jesus makes to glorify him look like inside your specific marriage? And that's what I want us to spend the rest of our time looking at. What does the day-to-day life look like? When you're a man and a woman who are living in marriage that's designed and empowered by Jesus for the glory of Christ, what does Jesus in your marriage want to empower? Well, there are three primary things in our text. And we looked at two of them last week very generically. We're going to look at them more specifically this morning. And we will not have the time to get to the third one. I thought we would, but we're just not going to do it this week. So we'll punt that to next week. The three things we find in our text that Jesus wants to enable inside your marriage for his glory, according to his design, is this. Jesus enables you to put off the old self. Jesus enables you to put on the new self, and Jesus enables us to live out God-given roles inside of marriage. We'll talk about those roles next week, but let's start with that very first one that we began last week. Jesus enables us to put off the old self. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices. You want to know what a marriage that glorifies Jesus looks like? You want to know what your marriage will look like? When Jesus is living in you, it will look like you living in the power of Jesus, putting off your old self. We talked a little bit about that last week. The old self is a reference to who we are without Jesus. It's who we used to be before Jesus made us new. And Paul says, put off your old self like a garment that you choose not to wear. Every day you get to wake up and choose the direction your life will go. And he says, never choose these things. Never choose to have these as a part of your life, as a part of your marriage. As a matter of fact, he starts by saying, verse 5, put those things to death. 
Do you know what it means to put something to death? It means to kill it. It means to get serious with it, right? I, I, I hate to bring this up, but there's, a, there's one big difference between living in Ohio and living in Florida. Did you know that? I grew up in Ohio. There are some things that we have in Ohio we don't have in Florida, but there's one big difference. And you want to know what it is? It's that you call palmetto bugs palmetto bugs when they're giant roaches, right? It's a terrible thing, and I'm, I'm still not used to it. 20 years I've lived in Florida. I'm not used to palmetto bugs at all. Here's what happens. In our house, every now and then, we will hear a child scream, and they scream out, roach, right? And you know what happens then? We go into Navy SEAL Team 6, find and kill the roach mode in our house. You know, we're not living with it. Like, like, we're not going to bed that night. We'll stay up and have a vigil. We are not going to do it. The other day, my son was in his bathroom. He said, Dad, there's a roach in here. He and I got our SWAT gear on and went into that room. Because I'm not putting my son to bed knowing that kind of monster's in my house. I'm not doing it. I've seen how they run faster than Carl Lewis in his prime, right? Not dealing with it. You know what we're going to do? We're going to get serious. Like we're going to get serious. I'm going I'm to pull out a bat. And, 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 and I'm going to pull out some spray so I don't have to get near it. And we're going to find that roach. We're going to kill it dead, okay? Proactive, kill it dead mode. That's what Paul says here. That's, that's what he's talking about. He says, don't play with this stuff. He says, get proactive. Kill it dead. Which in my house means call on Emily. <laughs> she, has, she does it, I'm afraid. And in this text, you know what it means? Call on Jesus. It means call on Jesus and get serious. Don't mess around with these things. And then he lists some things. And listen, friend, in your marriage today, this is what Jesus wants to do. Jesus wants to enable you to kill these things dead. Because if they're not killed dead in your marriage, they're going to kill your marriage. And notice what he starts with. He starts with sexual sin. He says sexual immorality, that's just a general word that refers to any expression of sexuality outside marriage. And we'll say this again because our culture has gone so far off the deep end. Any expression of sexuality outside of marriage is sexual immorality. It's not God's design. God designed sex to be only expressed inside a covenant of marriage. Impurity. That's actually anything less than complete purity. So it's not just our actions, it's our thoughts, it's our desires. That's why the next phrase is passion and evil desires. Things like lust, things like looking and lingering on people that we desire to have that aren't our spouse. That's why the next thing is covetousness. Wanting something that doesn't belong to us. He says that's actually idolatry. That's a false worship in our heart that worships sexuality greater than we worship God. Paul makes it abundantly clear that if Jesus is going to live in our marriage and Jesus is going to be glorified in our marriage, then sexual sin has zero place in the life of a follower of Jesus. And he's saying, don't mess around. Kill it dead. Look to Jesus and take this serious because if this isn't put to death, it will kill your marriage. But sexual sin isn't the only place, right? 
he, he, he goes on to describe other attributes, not just sexual immorality. He says anger and wrath. Anger is a strong displeasure towards something or someone. Wrath is a word that describes how other people experience our anger over something. Anger and wrath, he says, will destroy your marriage. And I know that some of you are saying, well, aren't anger and wrath things that are attributed to God? Absolutely. Verse 6 says that the wrath of God is coming because of these types of sins. So listen, anger and wrath are not inherently sinful because God is angry over sin without being sinful himself. He hates sin. And if you're a follower of Jesus, that actually becomes a really good way to evaluate your anger. Do you hate sin the way God hates sin? Now, Now be careful with that. Because then it brings another question. How did God choose to deal with your sin if you're a follower of Jesus? Well, I'll tell you how he did it. He didn't take his anger out on you. Did he? He took his anger out at the cross of Jesus Christ. You know what he showed you? He showed you patient love and grace. That great sacrifice to himself. He gave his own life to rescue and redeem you from the sin that he was angry over. So listen, if you're a person given to anger, ask the Holy Spirit to show you whether or not you are angry at sin or angry at the people in your life. And call on Jesus To cause your heart to be angry over sin in a way that puts the sin of anger to death. If your anger over sin leads you to be enraged at people, you need to put your anger to death. Next, Paul says, not only is it anger and wrath, but malice, slander, and obscene talk. Malice is a desire to harm someone or to attack them. Slander is destructive speech. Obscene talk is anything that's gross or impure that would come out of our mouths. Just think about how those all go together. He's saying guard the intentions of your heart that direct the words of your mouth. He's saying ungodly anger leads to malice, a desire to attack or harm people in response to them. And malice in our heart leads us to slander people, to use words that would destroy them, that would tear them down, whether it's behind their back or to their face. And he says that kind of talk destroys your marriage. Let me just ask you this. How do you talk to and about your spouse? Does your speech build them up or tear them down? Well, Paul says... If your words are destroying your spouse, you need to put those words to death. And then he ends by saying, put away lying. And a lie is anything that's not true, right? So lies and deceit, deception, misdirection, hiding from your spouse will destroy your marriage. Your spouse cannot trust you if you're a liar, And if you deceive your spouse or you hedge on the truth, then you're lying to them. And Paul says, put every lie to death. So he lists these things and says, listen, if you're going to be a person in whom Christ lives, who lives in marriage the way Jesus desires you to live in marriage, a way that glorifies Jesus, then you need to get life and death serious about putting sin to death. And don't forget the foundation of this chapter. The foundation of this chapter is that you need a miracle that only Jesus can do. You need the life of Christ in order to put sin to death. So don't roll up your sleeves and get to work on your marriage by kicking these things out of your life. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus 
to do for you what only he can do, which is to give you power over the sins that will destroy your marriage. But putting off your old self is only half the conversation. Let's pick up in verse 12 and see how he rounds out our approach in a sense. Don't just put things off, put things on. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen holy ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Jesus, as he lives in us, to live out A marriage that glorifies him enables us to not only put off the things that will kill our marriage, he enables us to put on the new self, the things that will bring his life into our marriage. And it starts in verse 12. Notice what he says. It starts by believing the truth about who you are in Christ. You notice that? Verse 12 says, you are chosen, you are holy, You are beloved. You know what those things are? They represent the deepest desires and longings that we have for relationship. Needs that that we have for acceptance. Needs that we have for intimacy. Needs that we have to be loved and accepted. And he says, begin by putting on the knowledge that your deepest relational needs have already been met for you in Jesus Here's why that's so important. It's so important because many of us come to our relationships and we inadvertently sabotage our marriages because we expect our spouse to provide something for us that only Jesus can. We we want a perfect acceptance, a complete belovedness, a holy intimacy that we were created to enjoy. We want those types of things from the very beginning and expect to get those things from our spouse. And what we do inadvertently is we set our spouse up for failure because we expect for them to perfectly give to us what only Jesus can give to us. And then time goes by and we get disillusioned inside our marriage. You know why? Because our spouse isn't God. Did you know that? Yeah, you did. (laughs) But does your heart, does your heart know that your spouse isn't God? You need him to do what only he can do. And listen to me, if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to hear this. You are already completely accepted By the greatest person in all existence because you've been chosen by God himself. You are able to have unhindered intimacy with God himself because you've been made holy through the work of Jesus. You are already loved with an unending love because you are the beloved of almighty God. God desires to be the one who meets your deepest relational needs. And listen to me, friend. If you can have your deepest relational needs met by Jesus as you enter into your marriage, do you know what that does? It liberates your spouse and fulfills you. 
It frees your spouse from an unfair expectation that they can never meet because they aren't God. And it liberates you to live inside of a marriage satisfied already because of Jesus. So you don't have to live self-centered seeking your own satisfaction. You are satisfied in Christ. And once you find your deepest relational needs met by Jesus, you can now step into the new you who is Christ in you. And here's what that looks like. Verse 12, compassionate hearts and kindness. Compassion enables us to feel what the other person might be feeling. Kindness is how you treat someone once you have compassion for them. And let me just ask you this. What if you began to look at your spouse with a compassionate heart instead of a critical one? Like what if you actually put yourself in their place and took into consideration their struggles and their disappointments and their scars? What would it look like if you showed your husband or your wife kindness today, not because you wanted something in return, but because you wanted to give them what God has already given to you, compassion and kindness. Moving on, he says humility and meekness. Humility is a lowliness of mind. It's what happens when you don't think that you're better than someone. It's what happens when you stop thinking that you're better at marriage than your spouse. I'm not going to ask if you've ever felt that way, but you have. And meekness is how you behave when you don't treat yourself as though you're the most important person in the room. It's what happens when you treat someone like they're just as important as you. And for the sake of time, let me just ask you this. What would your marriage look like today if you put your spouse's needs and desires above your own and stopped acting like you were the most important person in your marriage? What if you stopped seeing your wife as someone who's supposed to meet your needs and started looking for ways to meet hers? Put on humility and meekness. Jesus will empower it. Patience, forbearance, and forgiveness in verses 12 through 13. Patience is the willingness to wait when things aren't perfect. Forbearance is the willingness to put up with someone who is less than perfect. And forgiveness is a word that actually comes from grace. It's showing grace to people who've proven that they aren't perfect because they've sinned against you. And listen to me. I don't know all of the details about your marriage, but I do know this. There are two sinners in your marriage. And you're one of them. Your spouse is the other. And because marriage is a union between two sinners, you get double the sin, (laughs) Inside of a marriage. And since marriage is filled with God's desire for sanctification by exposing our sin, here's what that means. It means marriage becomes the place where we see each other's sin more clearly and most often. So do you know what we need in God-sized portions? Patience, forbearance, and forgiveness. They're indispensable. You will not... Be able to enjoy the fullness of God's design for your marriage if you are impatient and choose to not forbear or forgive your spouse when they prove they're merely human. And here's what I know. Even as I said that, as I was thinking this week, I realized that those, those words are agonizingly difficult. And I feel like I really needed to approach just how difficult and heavy those words are for so many I know in this room. 
Because when we talk about forbearing with sin and we say show patience with people who are less than perfect, I realize there are a thousand different scenarios that come crashing in with your spouse and some of those are unbelievably difficult situations. You have questions like this. What does it mean to be patient and forbearing with someone who's unrepentant over their sin? Does it mean I enable them to just continue to destroy our family in unrepentant sin? How does that work? Or how do I protect myself and maybe even my children from a spouse who's abusive or one who's trapped inside of addiction and wants to drain our family dry and is bad, dangerous for the people around us? How do I forgive and forbear with that kind of spouse? How do I forgive a spouse who's been unfaithful and continues to be unfaithful? Does forgiving them mean I have to stay in this marriage if they're continuing to break our marriage covenant? Here's what I know. Those questions are here inside this room. And here's what I want to just extend to you. I want to extend the, for, uh, the, the, the understanding that those are long and difficult roads that led you to this place and long and difficult roads that are going to lead you out of this place. And my commitment to you, our pastor's commitment, is that we desire that you would not walk those roads alone. Because I know that every single one of those scenarios takes a long time to discuss. And each one has specifics that we would have to sort out. And we want to do that with you. We'll just have to do that one-on-one. If you're in that kind of situation and you're asking the question, how do I forbear? How do I forgive? How do I show patience with an unrepentant, sinful, unfaithful, abusive spouse? We don't want you walking that road alone. Don't stay silent. Let your pastors, your shepherds know we want to walk that road with you. We want to look to Jesus for grace. And that's how I just want to encourage you to start that road, that journey this morning. You need Jesus. Those impossible situations are simply reminders that you need Jesus to do what only Jesus can do. We need Jesus to give us wisdom to know how to forbear and forgive without enabling the destruction of our own spouse. We need Jesus to let us know what patience looks like for the 10,000th time someone is unrepentant in a pattern of sin. We need Jesus. And you want to know the good news, church? We don't just need Jesus. We have him. That's what the foundation is. Jesus is your life. We don't just look at our spouse. We don't just look inside ourselves. We don't just look inside a self-help book. We don't just look at this list as a to-do list for us. We look to Jesus. And so that's where I want us to end today. In each of our marriages, as we come to Jesus and ask him what he desires, what his design is, what will glorify him, all of us have things to put off. All of us have things to put on. And all of us need Jesus, only Jesus, for the miracle working power to make it actually happen. So would you look to Jesus today? He's the most important person in your marriage. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? And if the Holy Spirit stirred your heart for a specific thing that needs to be put off, to be put out of your life forever, to be put to death, right now, would you just 
In prayer, bring that to Jesus. Acknowledge, I need this gone. Would you ask Jesus to give you faith to believe that you are already dead to that sin and it's dead to you? Some of you say this, the Spirit has convinced me of the things I need to put on. I'm struggling to forgive and forbear and be patient. I'm struggling to show a certain kind of kindness and compassion. Would you bring that to Jesus and ask him for the power to step into those things, believing he will enable you to do it? And for some of you, you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus. You've never experienced his resurrection power in your life. Right now, would you call on Jesus to save you? Acknowledge your sin and your inability to make yourself right with God and trust in Jesus and his perfect life and his sacrificial death and his glorious resurrection and call on Jesus to save you. Father, I I know our marriages are under attack. From every side in our culture, marriage is under attack and our specific ones included. And Lord, we know we have an enemy who seeks to steal and kill and destroy, who desires to creep in to our homes and into our lives to convince us of lies, to deceive our heart and mind. And I'm praying, Father, for the work of Jesus, the miraculous work of Jesus in the marriages in this room. God, would you let us see that Jesus will raise us up and be our life inside our marriage. God, would you stir in our hearts a desire to see Jesus glorified above everything else, Jesus glorified in our own marriages. And Lord, I pray that we would get serious with our own sin by your grace. We would seek to actively put it to death today. Not by our own power, but by Jesus in us. And Lord, I pray that we would begin by your grace in new patterns. Patterns of a brand new kind of life. Compassion and kindness. Patience and forbearance and forgiveness. Jesus, raise us up. Restore us to you and one another. Cause us to live in your power and not our own and be glorified in our lives. Be glorified in our homes. Be glorified in our marriages. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.